with all this stuff, SPACs, IPOs, GameStop, you know, going up, whatever, I, you know, I'm, I've lost track, 4,000%, whatever it is. Check out what happened to the high-flying names like GameStop, AMC, Cost, Express, and BlackBerry. They all came crashing down today. Look at what we're calling short squeeze stocks. They're going straight up especially GameStop, now up 75%. David versus Goliath showdown on Wall Street and the wild ride for GameStop as amateur investors take on hedge fund billionaires, prompting uproar and investigation. A historic day today, no doubt. This is gigantic. Welcome, everybody. Crushing it tonight. Cheers. I'm Ryan Ortega, and from Quinn Palms Productions, this is Short Squeeze. The story of how Wall Street bets went up against a hedge fund and sent GameStop to the moon. On January 19th, Citron Research said that it would host a live stream at 11.30 a.m. Eastern the following day. But then something strange happened. Left was being bombarded by people trying to hack his Twitter account. The stream was abruptly canceled. Left had been shorting stocks for over 20 years under his company, Citron Research. He initially started the brand as StockLemon.com in 2001 as a self-published blog containing reports on controversial companies. He later rebranded as Citron Research. Here he is addressing the situation on YouTube. Now, after 20 years, we noticed something. Where we started Citron was to be against the establishment. We've actually become the establishment. We've done this whole thing without ever hiding from lawsuits, without ever hiding behind a pseudonym. But it's completely now lost its focus. So as of today, Citron Research will no longer be publishing what can be considered as short-selling reports. The Citron narrative is going to change and have a pivot. What gets lost in the whole Citron Research world is the fact that last year, the performance of the Citron Fund and Citron Research on our long recommendations was up 121% average from recommendation to high point of stocks. And that was in 2020. We want to bring investors stocks that they can make five, 10 times their money on, but at the same time have strong management teams, ethical business practices, business models that are forward thinking, socially conscious. And we're going to bring that to the individuals. These companies can use the support of a whole new generation of shareholders that have an appetite to buy stocks. If you choose to buy GameStop here, it's caveat emptor. You know what we think about their business model. It's on you. Too much has already been written. But until then, we'll have our first story ready on Monday. We want everyone to breathe, smile. We're excited for the next 10, 20 years of Citron. Hopefully, we can put our experience to add some sanity and, most of all, some kindness back in this market. Cautious investing to all, and have a great weekend. Most people agree this was the catalyst for GameStop to pick up steam. The Wall Street Bets forum jumped all over this, and it went viral, spreading all over Twitter, Reddit, and the Internet in general. 
investors started piling in. Then, on January 22nd, trading in GameStop was halted at least four times because of volatility. By the end of the day, the stock jumped by 51% in a day and closed at a then-record high. Reddit users on the Wall Street Bets forum celebrated and promised more to come. But this story started way back in September of 2019. As I mentioned before, it was then when someone going by the name of Deep Effing Value started thinking the same thing. He first posted a screenshot from a brokerage account showing they were long call options on GME. While game stock was rapidly rising, speculation started building on the identity of the Deep Effing Value account. Then, on January 29th, the Wall Street Journal had an exclusive interview with the man behind the account, also known as Roaring Kitty. As it says on his YouTube channel, Roaring Kitty is a method for hunting stocks and pouncing on investment opportunities. And early on, he didn't have that many followers. His name is Keith Gill, and he's a 34-year-old CFA charter holder who, up until recently, worked for Massachusetts Mutual Life Insurance Company. In an interview by the Wall Street Journal, he said he wasn't a rabble-rouser out to take on the establishment— just someone who believes investors can find value in unloved stocks. He never expected to have a legion of fans debating his identity online or millions of dollars in his trading account. According to the journal, he began investing in GameStop around June 2019, he said, when it was hovering around $5 a share, after seeing it as a value play. His tagline had long been, I just like the stock. For the last six months, he was posting videos on YouTube on GameStop and investing in general, garnering quite the following. Here's Roaring Kitty talking about value and growth investing on his YouTube channel, as well as his through process on GME well before it started skyrocketing. And he also talks about the aftermath after the run-up. I wanted to make a video about my investment style, like a high-level overview of my investment style. And that's because uh, I feel like some people might join a uh, join the live stream expecting excitement or some day trading hot stock tips or stuff like that. And you're going to be disappointed because it's, it's not going to be like that. I'll drop this bomb when you're right at the start. I'm a value investor. <laughs> Value is just one factor. I mean, I'm value. I'm, I'm I'm a value guy, right? And that's where I started my development. And um, I understand the importance of value. But the issue is, it's just one factor. And I used to think it was so important, primacy of value, right? And, I, and I'd weight it quite heavily. But the truth is, it just matters a lot less than uh, than many think. The debate has been about, and for good reason, there this should be a debate. There should be a discussion. As a is, what is the future of GameStop going to look like? And I think the, the the dissension between like bulls and bears. I think it comes down to maybe some of the more bearish folks maybe for, more focused on the legacy business, which has had its challenges. It it is up against its secular risks. There's no doubt about that. But most importantly, and this is what you're starting to see the the market pricing in, whether you agree it or not. This is what you're seeing the market pricing is the pivot for the company, right? Because uh, the, the value of the business is the discounted future free cash flows, right? What are those going to be? And that's up for debate, up for discussion. As hopefully most folks know, uh, this is like there's a this is kind of a bit of a, a two part thesis with GameStop. That first part was kind of GameStop was kind of priced for bankruptcy there, which had always seemed like it was a bit overdone. Now there's this second level of the thesis um, of GameStop like reinventing itself, right? And kind of and Ryan Cohen leading the way a bit. 
And it's a, it's a different type of thesis, to be sure, to be sure. And it's, a, it's even a new type of thesis for me, right? It's a new one. I, I usually I'm like, a, as you all know, deep value investor. And uh, in this one, now, as I say, it's like now it, it, this could be a growth opportunity, right? Not to say it happens next week, next month, next quarter, nothing like that. But I'm looking, look at five years, right? Look out, look out the longer term. And there seems like there could be quite a bit of opportunity here. And that's, it's a, it's a different type of analysis, Let's go. We got lots to discuss today. Lots to discuss. Absolutely, huh? How, look at this. This is the highest close. Look at all. Oh, look at all these people, huh? Cheers, everybody. I hope you all have it a nice, a nice week. It's been a while. It's been a while. Hope all, hope all is well. Look at this. Lots to discuss today. Look at this price action, huh? Super bullish. Super bullish price action on GameStop here. And uh, look at up ten percent. This is six or eight. Cracked forty-five today. That's obviously big news. That's huge. GameStop's up about 5x from when I uploaded those videos over the summer. So that's great to see when you have a thesis and, and by and large, it unfolds as you hope that it could. Um, that's nice. So it shouldn't be taken for granted. It doesn't always happen. So um, that's great. And um, yeah, it's uh, just to clear up uh, some potential misconceptions. This this was a true YOLO for me <laughs> when, when I was building this position uh, last year. We had nowhere close to a million dollars. Um, I certainly do not drive a Lambo. We rent this house that you that you see. So it's been a wild ride for us as a family, and um, and I I'm it's, it has been just so much fun to experience that with you over the past couple of months. I hope you had uh, some some fun as well, and maybe if you if you even picked up on some educational elements along the way, all the better. But it has brought me tremendous joy to to just share in this what has turned out to be a bit of a case study, right? As some of us feel. As mentioned, most cite left as the catalyst for the stock to really start taking off. Here's how the series of events played out. On January 22nd, as the tug of war between everyday investors and hedge funds heated up and support grew for GameStop on Wall Street bets, the stock skyrocketed more than 50% in the trading session on January 22nd. It opened that day at 42.59 a share and closed at 65.01. During the after-hours and pre-market trading that weekend, the GameStop continued to climb. On January 25th, it opened at 96.73. Then, just after markets closed on January 26th, Elon Musk tweeted the term used heavily in the Reddit page to refer to GME, GameStonk, and a link to the R Wall Street Bets forum. Even Dave Portnoy was getting in on the action. This morning I woke up, literally my eye opened, AMC was up 200%. I'm like, what the, f I'll throw a couple hundred grand into it. By the time I got my order and it was up 250%, I pressed buy, I bought 200 grand of it at 200, it was up, already up 250%. And earlier that same day, high-profile venture capitalist Chamath Palihapitiya tweeted that he was buying GME calls. His tweet got nearly 26,000 likes. The internet exploded. Shares soared by nearly 140% in after-hours trading, and GME opened on January 27th at a whopping $354.83 a share. Soon, stories started popping up on Reddit, like one showing a trader turning $1,300 into almost a million dollars. One thing people started to discuss, is there any precedent for this? Volkswagen often comes to mind when investors try to find a short squeeze comparable. In October 2008, the German carmaker saw its Frankfurt-listed shares more than quadruple in just two days. 
For a brief time, it became the biggest company in the world by market cap. The rally was triggered by a surprise announcement that Porsche had boosted its VW stake, which sent a bunch of short-selling hedge funds rushing for the exit. So in fact, there was some precedent for this. But that was over a decade ago, and people have short memories. Plus, that was more a story about institutional investors. This was retail. This was different. Of the many analysts and hobbyists covering this story, Lily Frankis took a front row seat. Even after having no specific training or background in finance, her background is in bioinformatics, she put together a model called the NOPE indicator, which stands for Net Options Pricing Effect, which shows options market impact on the price of a stock. She even appeared on Bloomberg to talk about her findings. And now she's launched a research firm called Salience Capital, which is dedicated to understanding options-driven phenomena in U.S. equities. There was a lot of discussion early on whether this GameStop movement was a short squeeze or a gamma squeeze. And a short squeeze, if you're not familiar with the term, is really when the stock rallies to a certain degree, making short sellers exit their positions, usually at a dramatic loss. And the most textbook example of one was actually in about 2007, I believe, Volkswagen, when they bought Porsche they caused a pretty massive short squeeze leading to, if I remember off the top of my head, Volkswagen being the most valuable company on earth for about a day. What's interesting is that, and this is one of the things I noted on the 22nd when it first, I believe, spiked from about $40 to $70, is there was another force of play here. And that was options gamma. Options have been growing as a portion of the market for a while now. It was definitely improved on the retail side as, you know, the drug of choice. Since our favorite platform, Robinhood, came out where options could be traded for free. And it makes it a perfect bet for these highly speculative, highly risky stocks because unlike buying a stock where, let's say, GameStop's at 40 and you could technically lose all your money. So if you bought 100 shares, you'd be out $4,000. You could instead buy a severely out-of-the-money call option, which is saying, I'm going to make this very speculative bet by taking a long position of, let's say, buying a $60 call option. And I'll either lose all my money, but it'll be a lot less than if I bought shares, or I'll make a lot more money because I have access to this when you buy this severely out of the money option, where it's let's say $60 and expiring today and the underlying stock is $40, you're not betting on a safe investment. You're betting on it. It's either going to rally and make you a lot of money really quickly, or you're going to lose all your money. There's not much in between. But what's interesting is that every option needs to be hedged by the market maker because you don't want to take directional risk here. So the market maker, it's great if the option expires worthless because they don't have to pay out anything. But at the end of the day, there's a chance they'll rally. And that option you might have sold for 30 cents is now worth $20 and you might go bankrupt. So the way that they do this and the way they quantify this is this Greek of the option called the delta. And delta is effectively the hedging ratio saying that at this current price, if I want to hedge movement up and down, I need to own X many shares. For a put option, which is 
a bearish option where you're actually speculating on the price going down, this means you actually have to be holding negative shares or you short shares. For a call option, when you sell it, that means you buy shares. What's interesting though about the cycle, and this is what everybody's talking about, this concept of a gamma squeeze, is that the option contracts themselves, because they need to be hedged, can actually cause the underlying to move. This isn't something that really was common before recently. It's what I kind of call a degenerate case of options in general. Because if you look historically, traditionally, options were meant for insurance. That's why they have a pre we call it the premium, similar to an insurance premium. It's not really, you know, designed at least prima facie as a speculative tool, but it of course became one really quickly. So what's interesting though is, you know, when these options are written and someone needs to hedge it by buying shares, if you start buying these bullish out-of-the-money options, it actually starts moving the price of the underlying and it moves it up. And this has two effects. One, it attracts more speculation. And two, it makes those options that were previously farther out of the money closer to be in the money. So you have to buy more shares. And then this attracts more speculation, which increases the price, which means you have to buy more shares and so on until you get this gamma squeeze. You can tell it was a gamma squeeze, for instance, because it basically stopped at the highest strike option because once options get severely in the money, they effectively have no gamma. Gamma is really just this change in the amount of shares you need to buy and you're capped at 100. So once you pass that 50 barrier, so 50 delta being at the money, you start slowly reducing the amount of gamma on the contract, which means nobody's buying shares anymore. This model that I talk about and, you know, that I have on nopechart.com called the NOPE, this stands for the net option pricing effect. It's not, I wouldn't call it net in any meaningful sense because of our calculation. It's net in the same way that Panda Express is Chinese food. So if you squint very hard, it looks like the net delta. But once you apply it over time and space, so you know if you look at this as a statistical relationship, you can see meaningful correlations between it and you know various behaviors of the underlying. One of the things that I started researching initially was delta hedging, and delta hedging really encompasses all these phenomenon you might have heard of, you know, gamma, vanna, all of these are secondary derivatives of this concept of delta. And delta is most approximately this both leverage ratio. So it refers to how many shares you effectively control with an option contract, but it's also how many shares need to be mechanically bought or sold with one. And what's interesting about delta is that because it refers to number of shares, it does have an impact on the liquidity of the underlying. You know, you can't hedge an option without having some level of representation in the underlying ticker. And because of that, it's a source of illiquidity that I think a lot of people have not fully grasped yet. So to understand this story, we have to go a little deep into the weeds here, but it won't be too bad. First, what is short selling? Short selling is the practice of selling shares that you do not own. 
Basically, you need to borrow shares from your broker and then sell them. Soon after, the shares hopefully drop in price, and then you can buy the shares back at a lower price for a profit. But what if the price of the stock starts rising? Well, that's when things can go bad, and sometimes really fast. If the price of the stock starts rising, oftentimes you'll get what's called a margin call to put more cash into your account. If the stock keeps going up, many short sellers might give up and close out the short, forcing the stock even higher. If this happens all at once, it might cause what's known as a short squeeze. Another term thrown around a lot in this story is short interest, which is a measure of how heavily an asset is shorted by the market. For example, the float on GME was 120% short, just to use a hypothetical. What does this all mean? We called Karsten Jeska to find out. He's now retired, but in the past, he worked in institutional finance. He runs a website called Early Retirement Now and blogs about withdrawal rates and other interesting financial stories. He also trades options and wrote a couple of blogs on the GameStop story. If you want to short sell a stock, right, I mean, you can't just can't just put in a sell order and sell something that you don't have, right? So there's a, for stocks in particular, there's, uh, you have to first borrow the shares from, uh, from a broker. Uh, and uh, then that's something that you can short sell. So this is, uh, this is unlike, say, for example, in a futures contract or an option where you always have one long side, one short side, you can create a short out of thin air. Uh, this is very different for stocks. You first have to borrow the share and it has to be lent by somebody who has it actually in their account. Uh, and then um, after borrowing that share, then I can sell it. Uh, and uh, I, I'd still be compelled to give it back to the person who lent it to me. So I, I could be... It could be called at any time, hey, by the way, you have to return this share right now. Uh, and th then I would be forced to buy back the shares and uh, return them back to the lender. Yeah, so a short squeeze is when, uh, when you have a very heavily shorted uh, stock. And if the price goes up, uh, everybody who uh, has shorted that stock, who, has, who had hoped to buy it back cheaper and then make a profit off of that, uh, is, now is now looking at their P&L and it's going down and down and down. And at some point they would potentially get a margin call from, from an exchange where they said, well, you, you don't have enough money uh, to be able to uh, keep borrowing these shares. And uh, so uh, basically everybody could be in a pinch to um, now do basically a panic buying back. You have to buy back the share at whatever price uh, you can find. And uh, so uh, you, you potentially have the self-fulfilling prophecy where the price goes up uh, and then more and more short sellers get into trouble because they don't have enough, uh, enough equity, enough margin in their account. Uh, to cover these short sales, and they will have to do that that panic buying, uh, and, uh, and and return these shares uh, if they're no longer allowed to 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 keep these uh, short uh, shares uh, with the with the available margin in their account. One way how people can supply call options, because I mean, obviously, if you want, if you if you have a very optimistic view on a stock, right, you could buy a call option. Uh, out of the money and is usually you can get it pretty cheap and uh, then you lose all of the money unless the the market goes up to that strike price and above 
And so you always have the question, well, who would sell that call option, right? So this could be somebody who who holds the underlying stock and then sells the upside, obviously. So that, But apparently, and this, this seems to be how, how the market uh, works, there are not enough people to serve that demand. The, if people want to buy more call options than are supplied through these uh, uh, covered call option sellers, well, how do you create a call option? Well, if you are, say, a, a, a brick a big uh, a big Wall Street player, and you want to supply this uh, this call option that people want to buy. How do you then hedge your risk so that you don't get wiped out? Because right, because if you want to sell a call option, if the price goes up and it goes to infinity, then your your losses are are infinite too, right? And uh, how do you how do you hedge that risk? And basically, the the way you could hedge it is because you so you look at the option delta and uh, you see. Uh, for every dollar in uh, in price movement in the underlying, how much does that call option gain or lose? Right, and that's that's measured by the delta. So that's the derivative of the option price. Uh, so the derivative with respect to the underlying. So and then if you uh, if you don't own the stock outright, so the way you would hedge your uh, your potentially unlimited loss is that you could buy just enough stocks to exactly offset that price fluctuation in your option. So you look at what's the option delta and then you buy just enough underlying stocks to exactly offset that price movement. And uh, so again, this this would be uh, this would be the the way uh, for you to hedge the price movement, and you you wouldn't have to buy uh, the the entire amount of of stocks, uh, but you would have to probably buy a little bit less than than the than the amount that this call option covers, and uh, so that's 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 what uh, delta hedging is about. So here would be an example, right? So uh, so imagine. Um, Many weeks ago, when GameStop was still trading at $20 a piece, uh, if somebody had a call option with a strike price of 50, uh, so that option uh, would have a relatively low delta. Maybe it's only a delta of, of, of 0.05. So instead of, uh, so even though that call option covers 100 shares, uh, you could hedge the price movements in the call option by simply having a long position of five shares in, in GameStop. You don't have to buy the entire 100 shares. You have to buy only five to hedge that to hedge that price risk. So unfortunately, if the, uh, so what the delta tells you is, is the derivative. So this is really only a very local approximation of how, uh, of how the, uh, uh, of how the price moves, uh, in response to the underlying. And, uh, uh, so if the price keeps going up, then the delta will go up too. So that means if you are a seller of an option and you try to delta hedge that and the price of the underlying keeps going up, in order to keep that delta hedge alive, you'll have to uh, continuously have to buy more and more shares because the, the delta itself will go up as the underlying becomes more expensive. So so this is, this is, the, this is the gamma effect. So the, because the delta will go up um, in the, in that call option, when the underlying goes up. So think about the the gamma is essentially the second derivative of the 
uh, of the option price with respect to the underlying price. So and this could create this cascading effect where if uh, a lot of these uh, GameStop buyers from the from the Reddit group, uh, if if a lot of them got their exposure through buying call options, and these call options, uh, the sellers of the call options are some some Wall Street uh, institutional, uh, uh, some Wall Street institutions uh, that that are then delta hedging their exposure. So then these delta hedgers would be forced to buy more of the underlying stock. Uh, as the price goes up, so it creates this uh, this momentum effect, as you said, this cascading effect where price gains um, would imply more buying pressure, which increases more price gains. So it's a cascading effect, and it creates this panic buying on the way up. And by the way, it could also create the panic buying, panic selling on the way down, right? So because the the delta hedgers, when they see the price go down, they will then have to sell their uh, their shares again that they used uh, for the for the delta hedging so this is uh, uh, this this delta hedging and then the big uh, short uh, interest so they ha- they have these effects that they uh, that they magnify uh, the buying pressure that uh, that buying pressure begets more buying pressure and that creates more uh, price increases and that uh, creates greater and greater buying pressure and more price increases until the whole thing collapses again, obviously. You can look up on Yahoo Finance or somewhere how many shares are actually outstanding, right? So that's that's obviously one measure. And you probably, out of that uh, outstanding stock of shares, not all of them are really free-floating shares because there could be some uh, some that are held up because some, uh, for example, insiders are not allowed to sell them freely. Uh, so that's that's where the word float comes uh, comes about. So the the, the free-floating shares are a subset of the of the total outstanding shares and so these are the the number of shares that the that the company really issued that are uh, that are out there floating around now what happens is that if somebody takes one of these shares and then shorts one of the shares then uh, you create an additional person that thinks is now an owner of that share so so the total number of shares floating around uh, on a net basis, they will always stay the same. So if somebody uh, creates a short position, uh, it creates an additional long position. So it's, uh, uh, and I think the the big confusion here is that the people are confounding uh, the, um, the floating shares versus the total number of shares that people have in their portfolios that are that are long positions, right? So because the, the the two are not the same, and then if you in fact if you confound the two, you get into this uh, into this mind-boggling uh, uh, situation where well, what if the what if the shorts are bigger than the float? It it sounds like it will become impossible for all the shorters. To undo their short positions, but that's not true because for every short position you also create an additional long. So the 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 number of shares that are really uh, relevant for whether you'll be able to close your short positions are is not the float. It is the total number of long positions that are out there at at people's brokerage accounts. And I think if we if we don't distinguish the two, we can come to these. Uh, 
to these uh, uh, unintuitive and, uh, and and also also dangerous uh, misperceptions about what what it means to have a to have a short interest ratio of a higher of higher than hundred percent, right? So because you could have you could have a short interest ratio of two hundred percent, which means that uh, we have a hundred shares float. Um, we have 200 shorts and we have 300 long. So again, the net is still 100 shares, uh, but every one of these 200 shorters will have 300 potential long positions that they can draw from if they have to if they have to undo their short position. So it's not it's not uh, it's it's not impossible. Uh, it's not. It's, of course, it becomes ever more difficult if. Uh, if the short interest ratio keeps increasing above 100%, above 200%, above 500%, if that's that's even uh, even uh, if we even had one of those uh, ever before, but I mean at least theoretically it is possible to have these very high short interest ratios because again every short position creates another long position. So think of that as uh, I mean we're sitting at the table and I have a $20 bill. And I give my $20 bill to my neighbor and this neighbor lends it to another person and this person lends it to another person and this person lends it to another person. And you look at all the the debt uh, out there at the table, right? If, my, if there are five people that in this chain, one person lends it to the next, lends it to the next, lends it to the next, we would have a potential gross debt of potentially maybe five times $20. So people have $100 debt and there's only one $20 uh, bill outstanding. But then again, every person that has that has a $20 debt also has a $20 uh, asset. And uh, so it's, again, if you, if you mix up these gross versus net positions, you can sometimes get into some very uh, unintuitive, uh, unintuitive situations where uh, if you look at some of the gross numbers, they become suddenly astronomical compared to the net numbers. But again, once you once you factor out uh, that every debtor on that table also is a creditor, uh, it becomes a little bit more sustainable. I think the one statement that we should get in there is that Think about the, the hedge fund industry is not this monolithic institution, right? So uh, it's it's not like uh, you take on the hedge fund industry by driving the the GameStop price higher. So there have been many examples where basically one hedge fund is trying to ruin another hedge fund. So it's uh, it's not like um, by by ruining the uh, Melvin Capital or, or some some other some other hedge funds that were shorting some of these uh, meme stocks that the that, that that this is really taking on the hedge fund industry. The, the, actually, the the people that are that are most uh, enthusiastic about some some hedge fund going out of business are actually other hedge funds because this is huge competition in this industry. And uh, if uh, if one hedge fund goes out of business or goes under, uh, it, it's actually other funds that are that are benefiting from this. And uh, so I I, I would uh, I would not put much credence into this whole narrative that uh, uh, that that the hedge fund industry has has suffered uh, from this as a whole. It's 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 actually it's it's a much more nuanced uh, uh, story there. Another term you might have heard is gamma squeeze. This one is a bit more complicated, but let's simplify it down to brass tacks. 
A gamma squeeze is all about options contracts and their indirect impact on the underlying stock. An option is a derivative contract on an underlying stock. Let's use an example. Say you want to buy an iPhone, but you don't get paid until next week. And let's say the price of iPhones, for some reason, becomes very volatile. Maybe it's a special edition one, and let's say the market is pretty small for that special edition, and they don't make that many of them. So I'm in the business of selling iPhones. I say, just give me $5, and I'll let you buy the phone from me next week for $500. Basically, I'll guarantee you this price, but you don't have to buy it if you don't want to. However, either way, you'll lose the $5, kind of like insurance. This is called the premium. You're happy because you don't get paid until next week, and you just locked in that price. So if suddenly the demand skyrockets for iPhones and the new price is $700, you can get it at the lower price. But what happens if you don't need insurance? Maybe you have the $500 right now to buy a phone, but you think the price is going to $700, maybe even higher. So you buy some options for next week. Maybe you buy a lot of options. Maybe you use your entire $500 for the phone just to buy options. So instead of buying one phone for $500, you now own the option to buy 100 phones based on the $5 options premium price. That's some serious leverage. At this point, some might argue you're not buying insurance, you're just speculating on a short-term move in price. Well, as an iPhone dealer, I gladly took your $500, and I get to keep that no matter what. I'm pretty happy about that. But what if the price really does go to $700? Then I'm going to owe you some phones at a more expensive cost. So I figure, no worries, I'll just go out into the market and make sure I buy more iPhones. I won't buy 100 phones, but maybe I'll buy 30, since I only have 10 now. But soon, more options come in and the price of iPhones jumped from $500 to $550. Then I start thinking, what if iPhone's price spiked to $2,000 or something crazy like that? I'd be out a lot of money. So at that point, I go into the market and start buying even more phones, and fast. But guess what? I'm at the point I'm buying so many that me doing so actually drives up the price even more. That's a gamma squeeze. Ben Eifert runs a hedge fund specializing in derivatives, and he even did an AMA, Ask Me Anything, on Reddit's Wall Street Bets last year. My name is Ben Eifert. I run QVR Advisors, which is a San Francisco-based hedge fund business specialized in options and volatility. We've seen over the last year and a half, I would say, a very large explosion of activity among retail investors in general and specifically in options. It's a trend that I think a lot of people started talking about just more recently, but really dates back to um, even before, but especially to when Robinhood went to zero cost option trading or zero commission option trading and a lot of the other brokerages followed on and matched. I think it's still expensive to trade options in, in another sense, right? Because you have to pay bid-ask spread and, and so forth. But I think from a retail investor's perspective, that was a big attraction that they can buy and sell options and not get charged commission. I think that really amplified and accelerated an existing wave of movement in retail trading that was, I think, 
also stemming really from as part of the of the internet and social media boom in a sense right the development of lots of different specialized online communities sharing information about different things that they care about and the the growth of things like reddit wall street bets and all manner of different online investment forums were were part of that so again i think that zero the zero commission trading angle really dramatically amplified that wave and then the lockdowns associated with covid uh, in 2020 again dramatically amplified that wave where you just had a lot of people who had a lot more time on their hands either because they were now unemployed sitting at home or maybe they had a job but they moved to remote and now they're sitting at home and they can do day trading on the side and are less well supervised I like lots of factors amplified together but to to, to create parabolic increases in option volume especially from smaller retail clients you know seeing five or ten times increases in the amount of options trading versus any kind of baseline from a couple of years ago the pricing impact of any kind of end user flow like this um, it can be subtle but right because one of the characteristics of this retail flow is coordination in a social setting on the internet such as wall street bets for example right where a lot of people are discussing ideas discussing a particular idea that they're all excited about that's getting upvoted a lot on a on a thread and jumping in on that idea and so there will be buying and buying and buying for example let's say of of call options on tesla which was a very popular early theme from late 2019 and early 2020 and at first, a, I think a derivatives market specialist might say, oh, there's huge amounts of buying and the market makers are raising the prices. And now the implied volatility on these Tesla options is 60 or 65. And that's so high, it must be too expensive. But also that retail flow is very persistent, right? So there's more and more and more and more buying. Um, and also option market makers are holding the short side of those options. And we'll talk about this in a little bit, but that heavy short positioning among market makers in shorter term options creates a need for those option market makers to hedge those positions dynamically by trading the underlying. And that can actually increase realized volatility. So uh, you end up in a spiral where even though implied volatility is rising and you might think the options are becoming more expensive, it's complex because realized volatility is also rising and the flows are very persistent. So implied vol keeps going up and you know, you're tempted to say, oh, this is mispriced, um, but yet you might lose a lot of money naively sell, you know, being on the other side of that trade. So I think a lot of people characterize the overall retail options trading and retail trading phenomenon more generally is very unsophisticated and, and dumb. Um, I think that that's a dramatic overstatement. Certainly, if you look at something like Wall Street Bets, there are many followers or newbies in that community, but there are also a significant number of very sophisticated folks, some of which clearly came from the industry or have experience in derivatives markets at investment banks or hedge funds. And when you think about the GME trade in particular, it was a very, very sophisticated trade thesis, right? That incorporated both fundamental analysis of, of why 
some of those original folks liked GME as a stock and as an investment, but also incorporated a detailed positioning analysis, particularly around how heavy short positioning was in GME, how it had reached at some point 140% of short interest as a percentage of float, which is extremely high and creates a lot of danger of short squeeze because as the price rises, the risk shorts start losing money and their risk starts expanding and they have to cover driving the price higher. That trade thesis also involved very explicit discussion of gamma squeeze dynamics where a lot of the buying was happening in short dated call options, which again, as market makers sell those short dated call options, they buy the stock. And as the stock goes up and up, those market makers have to buy more and more stock to rehedge their positions, causing virtuous cycle of the stock continuing to go up. And all of these mechanics were discussed at length, you know, with lots of colorful foul language and so forth, right? But this is a this is a very sophisticated operation um, that I think some of the hedge funds involved on the short side did themselves a massive disservice writing up, in some sense, f- feeling happy that they were on the other side of dumb retail flow when, it, when in fact, this was uh, folks that were being much smarter about the trade than they were. So a gamma squeeze just refers to the self-reinforcing dynamics of a rally in a stock in the context of a lot of buying of call options. And in particular, so when you think about what an option is, an option gives the buyer the right, but not the necessity of buying a stock in the future on a given date, but at a pre-agreed price. And so what that means is the, the maximum risk the buyer takes is the option premium, the price that they buy the option for, which might be when GME was at five or six dollars, it might have been 25 cents or 50 cents to buy some call option. But if the stock goes up enough, they can make uh, as an unlimited amount of money in principle, right? And so it's a very asymmetric trade. It's a very positively convex trade. As a result of that, when the the exposure of an option to the spot price to the underlying price of that option is what it starts out let's give just an example say we bought that a $20 call option on GME when it was trading at $5 that might only have a 5 or 10% sensitivity or delta in other words a $1 move up in GME would only increase the option price by 5 cents or 10 cents because it's very far out of the money. But as that stock, as GME goes up and up and up towards 20, that sensitivity is going to increase to 20%, 30%, 40%. When it's around $20, when GME is around $20 where the strike is, probably that sensitivity will be around 50%. And the market maker who has sold those options is increasing the size of their shares hedge that they purchased as that sensitivity of the option rises. Right? Now, when an, an option is very short dated, like a one week option, for example, that the rate at which that delta or that sensitivity changes as the stock price changes is very high. And so that's uh, when you think about why do Wall Street bets, uh, the aggressive component of that crowd really like to buy short dated options. First of all, it gives them a lot of leverage. They only pay a certain amount of premium for uh, a great deal of exposure and they can make a very asymmetric payoff and second because the collective size of that community is so large that if they're buying enough call options 
they're actually creating that virtuous cycle in the stock where their buying pushes the stock up, their buying in call options forces dealers to dynamically hedge buying more stock and amplifying the speed with which that price move happens. And that's what we refer to as, as a gamma squeeze. So I think in part two, again, there were a number of things going on, but, but one thing was, if you go back to round one for a second, most of the original shorts were forced to cover. Because if you think about the size of that move, any hedge fund that had a significant short position in the stock when it was at five or ten dollars, uh, you know that stock went to four hundred and eighty, right? So those folks were all uh, were all forced to cover uh, or or put out of business. There were, however, quite a lot of new managers who were not involved who came into short GME at much higher levels, right? And uh, I think especially as then that squeeze turned and GME stocks started to go down, it, it then probably attracted a lot of folks who viewed it as, oh, well, this stock was only ever supposed to be a $20 stock or a $10 stock, right? And and it squeezed up to 480 and now it's come off to 200 or 100, but I still think there's a lot of, of juice in, in the short and, and, the, and the Reddit community is blown out. So this is a great opportunity, right? So certainly I think there was a lot of that money that was probably forced to cover on, on the magnitude of that move that we saw. Jem Carson is a 20-year market veteran who used to be a market maker and now runs Agia Capital. He talks about market structure and why flows are so important in today's market. Um, and so this reflexivity of positioning, I talk about it a lot on social media and whatnot, but it's this, this idea that, you know, uh, people think of options and volatility products as insurance. But insurance is, um, you know, if you have a tornado uh, if you're getting tornado insurance, that whether or not the tornado is going to come, you know, if the tornado is coming, you know, whether the insurance contracts are held or not does not affect whether the tornado will come through town, right? Whereas with options, um, you know, the positioning actually does affect the likelihood of, of something happening or not. So um, I think that's a, a essential understanding, um, you know, that, that flows ultimately are the driving force and positioning is the driving force on, on, on you know, uh, supply and demand. And supply and demand ultimately is what drives prices. Before we hopped on here, we were talking about uh, fundamentals and, and how, how so much time and energy is spent on measuring fundamentals. But the only reason fundamentals ever mattered was the, the how much they affected flows, how much they drove supply and demand. People were willing to, everybody was playing the same fundamental game and people were willing to buy things because they believed it, it provided them a certain degree of safety if they had um, uh, fundamental, you know, fundamental great, great cash flows, right? And, and that understanding it drives flows, and so fundamentals had meaning. But in a world which is which is driven by liquidity, um, and uh, you know, ultimately we're looking at speculative growth, you know, looking for eyeballs or something that you know, investing in something that may or may not one day come to fruition. Ultimately, fundamentals and those cash flows don't matter. That degree of freedom that they, you know, or safety. I apologize that that is is provided. Um, is essentially uh, so far away from, uh, you know, speculative, you know, speculative valuation that that it's uh, it doesn't matter. Now, in a world this may change, right? We might get to a point where valuations dep get depressed so much and cash is no longer liquid. You know, you you have, you have no ability to borrow money, and and companies are then forced to, um, you know, rely on their own cash creation, right? These these companies are no longer uh, able to access. Free money, 
um, or easily, uh, you know, easily access liquidity. And so when that happens, uh, fundamentals will matter again uh, in the sense that they will drive supply and demand. Um, companies with cash flows will be able to buy other companies. They'll be able to buy their their stock back. They'll be able to, um, you know, do these things which uh, you know which should happen in a world with without uh, you know infinite liquidity. But in a world with liquidity easily accessible, valuations no longer actually have a direct role um, or even a substantial role in valuation. Corey Hofstein is CIO of Newfound Research and runs a podcast of his own called Flirting with Models. He's also the author of the popular paper, Liquidity Cascades, The Coordinated Risk of Uncoordinated Market Participants. He talks about how flows influence markets. I think one of the big questions we have to ask ourselves is, why does a short squeeze or a gamma squeeze in an individual name like GameStop seem to create spillover effects in the rest of the market? Like, why should the rest of the market even care? And I think one really important point here is about uh, the mechanical reactions that can occur in the funds that hold a company like GameStop and how their reaction to what's going on in that individual stock can influence their other holdings. So, for example, long-short funds that exist in the market often operate with a degree of leverage, and they're going to hold both long and short securities in some sort of balanced manner so that the net amount of exposure they have to the market is at some sort of target. When you have an individual security in the book, say a stock like GameStop on the short side of the book, absolutely explode both in volatility as well as up in price. And so its relative size is going to get really big. That's going to have meaningful implications for what that fund is going to have to do in response. So for example, uh, the fund portfolio may now begin exhibiting outsized amounts of leverage compared, excuse me, volatility compared to their target And so they're going to start reducing the total amount of leverage that they have, selling both long and short securities that they have, buying back shorts and selling their longs to reduce their total exposure and get into a risk space that they feel more comfortable. So that, again, uh, a reaction to what's going on in that individual security, having knock-on implications for the rest of their holdings. They might also have to buy back that individual security that has grown in dramatic size, and that might have implications for other securities that they need to sell to free up capital to do that buyback. Uh, They might have to right-size the notional exposure they have in their portfolio, the net notional exposure, and so they might have to sell down some of their longs. The really important point being is that when there's a strong outsized impact in an individual stock, it doesn't necessarily just stay within that individual stock. It can have really strong spillover effects into other securities. And that's exactly what you saw with GameStop. If you look at different baskets of holdings, the securities that hedge funds were very long during that time period 
disproportionately underperformed the market the week that GameStop was going up, largely because hedge funds were having to sell those names to free up capital and hit their risk parameters. And so it's really important to recognize that even though all the chaos is happening in one name, uh, it can have potentially important impacts on the rest of the market structure. I think a lot of the media narrative around the GameStop saga was around the role of retail investors. And I don't want to downplay that role. I think they had a really important catalyst in this narrative. But I think as GameStop continued to rally, there were certainly a large number of institutions who piled into the trade. But I think another really important question to ask is where can there potentially be unintended buying pressure? So those institutions that stepped into the trade arguably did so with the intention knowing what was going on with this short squeeze and this gamma squeeze. But are there other systematic or mechanical strategies out there that might be unintended buyers and may even be unintended bag holders? And there's two that somewhat come to mind. Uh, The first is a mechanical momentum strategy. This is a strategy that's going to sort the investment universe for stocks that are recently relatively outperforming and buy into those names and avoid the names that are relatively underperforming or potentially even short them. If you have a fast enough momentum system, a name like GameStop might pop to the front And unless you are implementing some quantitative or qualitative filters about the quality of the momentum that's occurring, this is a strategy that might end up buying into the frenzy uh, without necessarily truly understanding what's going on and how the frenzy might deflate. I think another really interesting one here is the role of passive investing. What we saw with GameStop is it went from a small cap to a mid cap to almost a large mega cap name just because of the run up in price. And so if we actually had indices that were rebalancing and reconstituting, you could have seen ETFs adding GameStop into their exposure. And as flow went into the, from small into large cap indices, uh, and you saw a continued amount of flow into those large cap indices, they would become the buyer of that name. And so there's interesting implications around when these rebalances are potentially occurring versus when these little idiosyncratic events are popping up as names are um, dramatically swinging in their market cap size and, and exposure. And what happens when we have one of these swings that persists for more than a week? What if it persists for a month explicitly around a rebalance date? What if uh, these retail investors had been savvy enough to start a gamma squeeze and a short squeeze right around an index reconstitution date, fully expecting that that index, if they could get it up to a high enough market cap, they could actually game the index into buying it. I think that's sort of second level nefarious thinking Uh, But if we do truly believe that there was some orchestrated part to the short and gamma squeeze that occurred in GameStop, it seems like the next level would be to orchestrate the timing of it around when it might force other ETFs or indices to become buyers as well. Next time on Short Squeeze, as the mania picks up, Melvin Capital would finally cover it short. And soon, there would be other targets of stocks with high short interest, not just by Wall Street bets and retail traders, but even other hedge funds.